welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about new movies, new and newish releases that anyone can see. I don't want this to become a place where I'm just always talking about movies that are only in festivals, which probably seems somewhat fictional to a lot of people. I promise you, though, these festivals do exist. But in the interest of talking about things you can click your way and maybe soon walk your way to see, we're going to be covering some recent movies. And joining me to do this, I'm very pleased to be pairing together two guests I'm always happy to talk with. So it's kind of especially a lot of fun um, that they're both able to come on the podcast this time. We will go alphabetically. I'll start by welcoming Beatrice Loiza. Welcome, Beatrice. Hello, hello. I am glad to be back yet again. <laughs> and also joining us, we recently talked on an episode from Sundance, uh, as did Beatrice, is Nicholas Russell. Welcome, Nicholas. Hey, guys. It's like a little uh, New York Film Festival Critics Academy. Reunion. That's true. <laughs> we were both part of... What year was that even? 2019, <laughs> I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, 2019 New York Film Festival Critics Academy alumni. Yeah. Oh, wow. So this is a, a reunion of sorts. I, I didn't realize that it was the, that was the same year. That's fun. Yes. Yeah, you like spoke to our cohort. Well, you know, at that stage of the year, I'm just pretty much running on fumes. So I go wherever people tell me to go. We were told to all desperately pitch you stuff. So. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, well, I do remember, yes. yeah, both of you uh, did write on the festival. Beatrice, you wrote about Albert Serra, I believe. That's true. I wrote about Liberté, the film I, I still very much like. <laughs> And Nicholas, you wrote about, I want to say... Yeah, what did I write about, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> the Russian film, wasn't that it? Beanpole. <laughs> yeah, Beanpole. Beanpole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved that movie. I still think about that movie. Yeah. That's a movie, I mean, I mean, both of those movies, you know, being in the theater is just so much part of that experience. I mean, in sort of different ways. I mean, Beanpole, just the colors of, of that, I mean... They really only pop on, on a big screen like that. Well, let's move to the discussion portion. That was the aperitif. And I think we realized that <laughs> every podcast episode is structured as a feast. So I think that the one movie that we realized we have all seen is uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which I think we only talked about on a Sundance podcast, but as I think, uh, Nicholas, you said so eloquently uh, on one of those podcasts, first impressions cannot be our, our last <laughs> word on things. So I'm glad we'll be able to talk uh, talk about it now. Okay. Um, Nicholas, you actually wrote about it and, and spoke with uh, the filmmakers. How did that affect what you thought about the movie? That, that was for Sight and Sound, right? Yeah, so yeah, it was for Sight and Sound. It's interesting because they approached me like... Really early. They yeah, tend like, to. <laughs> like December of last year is when I saw it. It was really early, and I hadn't, I hadn't really no idea about the movie. I, I remember the announcement for it and the cast, and kind of thought nothing more of it, just because it seems like another biopic. I don't know. The biopics are hard because it's like you can never tell how good they're going to be, and most of them are really bad. But they approached me on a very, very, very quick turnaround. They were like, would you watch this movie and write a piece for us about it? 
Also, we have interviews set up for you for Daniel Kaluuya, the director, and Lakia Stanfield next week. And I was like, oh, so I guess I have no choice then, right? Like, <laughs> I guess I have to do it. Um, but it was kind of cool because the movie really took me by surprise. I was, I didn't, know, I hadn't seen anything by Shaka. I knew about Fred Hampton, but wasn't like intimately familiar with the details of his work or his life. And so watching the movie is kind of just like, it's so refreshing to watch a biopic that has like little to no exposition and like does sort of nothing to like foreground its own importance. (laughs) I feel like a lot of biopics, especially about, as I write in this piece, like about like black political figures, you know, there's like a weight to the movie in terms of just like, it's kind of like a PSA or it's like, remember how important this person is. And it's like, I feel like for the most part, Judas and the Black Messiah does a really good job of just presenting what's happening and sort of giving you sort of equal time, a little bit more time with the Keith Stanfield's character in terms of just like letting you decide like what is happening. And they don't really do the thing that a lot of more modern biopics do, which is like, tell you how relevant it is to today. <laughs> I hate when they do that. Like, like, oh, isn't this familiar? It's like, okay, Jesus Christ. Like, in the grand scheme of things, this didn't happen that long ago. So, like, yeah, it's, like, still relevant. But, um, so, yeah, I, I wrote that piece, filed it, forgot about that movie, really. I was looking forward to it being out wide so that I could tell people about it. But when... Sundance came around and like Juice and the Black Messiah was like a late entry to Sundance and like more press started to come up about it. And I was like, oh, okay. Like this movie could be like a pretty big deal. I hope it is. You know, I think it's really good. And when stuff like that is really good, I usually just hope that the like sort of media coverage of it isn't <laughs> horrible. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I came to it. It is strange how the movie, uh, I mean, it, it didn't have the highest profile, I think, uh, initially. I think partly just because of the weird opaqueness of the release scrum just as, as the year yeah. we, we went into a new year. Um, so, it, yeah, it was somewhat gratifying to see it have a little bit of a, a, a more of a launch there. I'm actually glad to hear, you know, to hear you say it, that most biopics really just aren't good. I mean, I... <laughs> I probably shouldn't just say it like that, but I said it, so it's fine. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's it's part of the genius of this movie is how it it almost undermines its itself a little bit just by having this twin portrait. I mean, it, it's it's almost bizarre in a way to think of how equally it treats the kind of protagonist and antagonist uh, in a way. You know, I still feel it's like a kind of a bummer of a movie, um, and that's that's interesting. <laughs> I am curious, like, what did Shaka King and um, Danny Kalia, what, I mean, what did you kind of glean from what they were saying about the film? I, I have to say, like, I think it's kind of radical beyond the idea that it's, you know, a figure that is treated as radical in history. But I mean, as a studio film, I think it kind of is as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I mean, that was among the more salient things that I picked up on and talked about with Shaka. It was like, as much as, uh, the movie foregrounds the individualism of the two people, especially in the title, which I'll get to in a second because Shaka King and I talked about how that was not the title they wanted. But 
yeah, it's a it's a movie that focuses on a collective, very much the sort of the groundwork, grassroots, sort of like ugly side of organizing, especially amongst different groups that don't necessarily like each other and and makes that sort of the star of the show. I think like as much as Daniel Kaluuya is is fantastic in that movie and there's a lot to talk about in terms of like his performance as an evocation versus an impersonation versus, you know, like sort of embodying a fully formed character. Fred Hampton isn't in that movie very much. Like for a movie that is ostensibly about him, it constantly, I think to its benefit tries to recenter the focus on the group of people that are doing that work and that are trying to make inroads within their community to, you know, advocate for a collectivism that can be strong enough to successfully combat like the police in the neighborhood, the like local and national like politics and like sort of machinations that are happening. Like Jager Hoover is, I talked, I asked Shaka, it's, it's not in the interview, like in the final piece, but I asked Shaka what the decision was in pre-production to make J. Edgar Hoover like a ghoul basically in the movie. Like he looks like a goblin basically. Um, (laughs) And, and he has like a sort of larger than life um, presence. I mean, the first time you see him, he's like on this massive stage and like, and everything seems just a little bit bigger than it should be. And a little, and for with him, a little seedier than it probably accurately was supposed to be and Shaka was like yeah that's totally intentional I feel like as a certain dramatic choice it's better to take a little bit more dramatic license with certain figures so that the focus can be on their either their actions or the like impact of their actions but yeah and then I talked to Daniel about approaching the portrayal of Fred Hampton and a Shaka, Lakeith, and Daniel both, they all said this, which is that so Fred Hampton's son was heavily involved in the production of the movie. He was on set a lot. He would be sort of like political, social guide on set. Daniel talks about Fred Hampton Jr. would like take everyone aside and like sort of give them this like workshop and like uh, socialist communist politics. And just be a presence there to make sure that the focus was on something beyond, like, you know, hagiography of his dad, which Chaka talked about ultimately in the title of the movie, which I didn't end up getting the original working title, but Judas and the Black Messiah was not, it doesn't seem like it was his idea. It seemed like it ended up being a sort of studio decision, which I think is interesting because for a biopic that does not have a lot of like sort of allegory that title I think sets up people's expectations in a way that's a little simplifying to the actual the nuances of the story and within the movie there it's not like there's like a lot of Christian sort of Jesus-y imagery in it for the better it's just that like (laughs) it seems like such a strange title for a movie that is much better than that title. And Shaka was talking about how like that was just part of the, some of the concessions you have to make with the larger studio, which I think in the grand scheme, given the like Nick, as you were saying, how radical the movie actually is, I think it's 
it's a hit worth taking. I actually, regarding the title, I agree. It, it does kind of seem like the sort of thing that would be a studio concession. I mean, there's a simplicity to that, you know, the, you know, the betrayal, um, that is just like an easy uh, way to latch onto the movie. But, you know, I was thinking a lot about, you know, the decision to, to cast the, these characters as with actors that are actually much older than, uh, you know, what these people were in real life. I mean, the movie I, I felt lost some of the tragedy of, of the fact that Lakeith Stanfield, William O'Neill, you know, when, when he makes this decision, you know, to work for the FBI, to essentially betray this cause for black liberation as a, a kid, essentially. And I think the film does erase some of just like the nuance of that and the, the tragedy of that, of, you know, the fact that, you know, Fred Hampton was killed at 21. I mean, he's a baby at this point. And the title of Judas and the Black Messiah I feel like it does cast the two characters um, as much older than they were in real life. And it really hones in on the fact that um, William O'Neill or, or this version of William O'Neill is essentially just this selfish man. And, and in a sense, it does simplify them, but I think it does kind of make that fictional choice in order to um, allow us to kind of get a, a certain grip on the characters that, you know, perhaps isn't, the reality of what happened, but uh, I think it does make for compelling drama at the very least. Yeah, Shaka was talking about the sort of script writing process and how they had to they had to take out so much like detail, historical detail, in order to streamline the story to what the final result is. And I agree with you, Beatrice. I think like for people who are going to watch this movie and maybe not do any more research, like, or just like, are, are happy to leave their experience just at the end of credits. It's like the tragedy of, and sort of remarkable fact of how young both men were is lost given that, you know, these are actors in their like thirties. I just, I feel like, you know, it's very consciously making that decision, though, at the same time, which kind of makes me respect it more. Like it's consciously, you know, shifting it into more fictional territory and in a sense, inviting you, you know, I, you know, I, for one, I, I knew a bit about the history and, and about Fred Hampton. But like even after I watched the movie, which was last night, so it's, it's kind of fresh for me, you know, I was compelled to just like do additional research because like I feel like it's almost intentionally leaving things open and, mm. and inviting your curiosity to explore more details about the history and what actually happened. Yeah, totally. I, I think the stylistic choice, the choices that the movie makes is part of the reason why I like it so much is that it's very rare for historical dramas and black biopics specifically to do, to go ahead and make that choice in terms of making things a little bit more dramatic than you would necessarily think was like in good taste. But I think that is just part of what the medium, the medium of cinema sort of like demands is like, it offers you the opportunity to sort of just like do some stuff that would otherwise be sort of rote and kind of boring in any other medium. I think like mm -hmm. 
for anyone who watches that movie and like wants to know more, I think there's a documentary called the murder of Fred Hampton that's on YouTube. That is this amazing. It's almost like found footage. It's, it's just a lot of archival footage from that time. Um, All black and white, no talking heads, no narration. It's just like, it's presenting just these different snippets of information and time it kaleidoscopically like sort of collates like newspaper footage um like interviews with uh lawyers and the like police force and the mayor and and it gives you this very close view of the sort of political and social circumstances surrounding fred hampton the black panthers and ultimately his murder where it definitely seems like that document must have been an influence on the movie because there is, for lack of a better word, there's like a realism to the sort of emotional tenor and like behavior of the characters in Judas and the Black Messiah that I felt was so easy to grab onto. I feel like usually with these movies, it's like the sort of acting choices are such that it's like focusing on like, whoa, he sounds just like him or like, whoa, he (laughs) looks just like him. And it's like, the movie kind of just like foregoes any of that and is kind of like, okay, do you believe these characters as the people that are on screen versus like the parallax of like, oh, okay, so let's look at this clip of Fred Hampton and side by side with this clip of Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton. It's like, I don't think any of the people involved had any interest in that. Um, right. And small decisions like that really add up. I think like Judas and the Black Messiah is a movie that is good in part because of the things it doesn't do that a lot of other movies would have done. Yeah, I I totally agree. It's it's so easy to sink into the drama I found. And, you know, for reasons that the film, you know, it, it creates these narrative and, and emotional beats and you know, hearkening to your piece, Nicholas, you know, like you said, so many of these historical movies can feel like PSAs where they're just tracing, you know, what you already know about the history and the tragedy and just kind of like bringing it to life. But, you know, here it's, you know, it it is devastating and it feels so devastating by the end, you know, even, you know, even if it were a fictional story, I feel like I would almost, you know, still feel as emotionally wrecked as I, as I did, you know, knowing that it was actually a real thing, which I think is, you know, a great achievement as for the performances. Actually, I I do think that Daniel Kaluuya is, is really impressive here, but it is kind of freaky how well he's able to capture the voice and and the cadence. No, absolutely. And That's the thing. It's like, yeah, of Fred it's Hampton. It's such a fun line. I and it's like I don't know. I it's just one of those things where when you see really good acting, especially if it's like a person that's playing a real life person, and you are at least somewhat familiar with the real life person, you can't help but be conscious of like of looking for their sort of choices that they're making. Like I think a lot about like. Uh, David Oyelowo and uh, Selma as Martin Luther King, a pretty like evocative performance. But I think because of just the fact that like we've basically memed Martin Luther King out of like into oblivion, like it's whenever someone does Martin Luther King, it's like someone doing Abraham Lincoln where it's like, Mm -hmm. no matter how good it is, it's kind of like you either have to make, you have to probably make a really weird choice in order for it to sort of stand out, which like 
in the latter example, I, I would think of like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis's Lincoln, where like, I feel like that performance kind of flies in the face of like a, most portrayals of Lincoln, especially in the quality of his voice. But yeah, with Daniel Kaluuya, I don't know. I'd like, he gets so close to the physicality of, of Fred Hampton. But at least for me, it never seemed at any point like he was self-conscious of it. It just seemed like he probably got into a real groove of like making certain choices about, okay, I'm going to try and get close to this vocal quality and maybe like try and get close to the way that he walked or the way that he looked or the way that he held himself and then go from there. I know it's one of those things that like alchemy of acting is something I'm always interested in. And then when actors talk about it, I have no idea what they're talking about. So it's like, it's just, it's sort of like a, a thing to behold. I would encourage people to, in this one case, like maybe watch the murder of Fred Hampton because there's a lot of footage of him speaking in rallies and stuff. And then watch Judas and the Black Messiah and see just like, it's kind of uncanny in a way that does not make you at all conscious of, of the acting that Daniel Kaluuya is doing, which is why I think he's, you know, he's really talented. And he has like a real faculty for accents. I think Daniel Kaluuya has played Americans a lot and and is never playing the same type of American. Accents are sort of something that <laughs> can make or break uh, a performance, especially if it slips just even a little bit. But yeah, I think th- there's so many smart choices in that movie. Jesse Plemons like, is great. I, th- I feel like we'll probably be an undersung component of that movie, but I think it's such a smart choice to cast him as the sort of like conduit to the FBI for William O'Neill because he doesn't do this scenery chewing racist thing that like pretty much everyone else would do. <laughs> um, and he brings a lot of humanity to that role without it being like belabored as like, Oh, he's just another guy. It's like, Oh yeah. He's like, he seems like a real person who I believe his choices, but I don't, it doesn't make me like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked his performance too, because and, and the way that his character was constructed, because I mean, I'm sure from the get go, he's, you know, racist. <laughs> but you see how he becomes more racist through like the conditioning of his job, and the other people that are, you know, more important than him. It's like you see him becoming more evil until you know, what he ultimately becomes at the end where he pretty much is suggesting, yeah, I'm, I'm going to kill Fred Hampton. (laughs) But like, you don't, you don't, in the very beginning, when you first meet him, you know, there's doubt to whether he's really capable of that. And, and the transformation I found really compelling. Yeah. When talking about Jesse Plemons' character, the, the phrase institutionalized racism comes to mind because that's like almost, it's almost literally what's going on there because it's, it's almost as if, uh, the compromise, the moral compromises he decides to make, lead him down down that that path, and it is pretty subtly portrayed there how that happens. I mean, Hoover, I I don't actually I don't know if it was Hoover himself. Wasn't it an FBI phrase in one of the FBI like COINTELPRO documents, the the Black Messiah that that was what their fear was. That was why they, they claimed like that was what would destab- destabilize the United States. Um, just the idea of uh, a figure who who could unify uh, opposition 
in in that way in the United States. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the the word was used in um the Sam Pollard documentary MLK FBI. Yeah, this idea yeah. of the Messiah, which w- that would make a good double feature. Yes, movie. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think that word is something that was actually used. Beatrice, thank you for for mentioning that documentary. Um, it would be like a perfect double feature for Jews and the Black Messiah, especially about like Cointel Pro, which Jews and the Black mm-hmm. Messiah, you know, talks about and it's there, but I think MLK FBI does like a far more granular detailed job of like showing just how fucked up all that stuff was. In a sense, it's effect it's effective using that phrase because it just shows the kind of hysteria, uh, basically, or, or just the overheated kind of rhetoric that that they're thinking. I mean, this is law enforcement is using using the term "black messiah" to describe what their you know procedural decisions are going to be. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's insane. You know, I mean, it's it's that kind of imagining your opposition taking on these religious proportions that are threatening the very basis of you know the country it's and yeah i totally agree about mlk fbi that's that's another movie where where truth is stranger than than fiction like i can only speculate whether some of that was what went into discussions with with the studio you know the fact that they would be coming up against what is like a popular conception of the panthers or fred hampton I don't know. I just even am amazed by how the final sequence of the killing is is shot. You know, I, I think it just somehow captures the just the gruesomeness of it, but also sort of the routineness of it. Like it's just it was just like a police raid, and and you know we're sort of seeing it sort of filtered through a point of view of a terrified person, basically. And it's just an incredible way to end the movie that doesn't doesn't give you any comfort of and, and yeah i guess you were just talking about this but it doesn't play up the tragedy of it because i think in that moment it's not a tragedy it's just a, an atrocity i mean that, that yeah the tragedy is about his career in general but at, at that point that scene i was just amazed to be watching that i don't, I don't know what you guys thought about how that the kind of wind down of, of the film goes yeah i feel like something i was conscious of while watching it was this the idea of how Hollywood portrays the police. I haven't seen enough movies across a sort of wide enough birth of time and filmmakers to get a true sense. But like, I often wonder, and this, this has nothing to do with like Shaka or like the people who made the movie. It's more of like a studio industry level thing. of like, I wonder if Hollywood tends to just like, follow the what's in vogue of like liberal Hollywood (laughs) in terms of like how people see certain things like politically I I kept wondering if the portrayal of the police as basically evil in this movie like was like a radical thing or if it was something that the studio didn't even see as being politically motivated and was just more about like we're going to give Shaka and the writers like free reign to like do the story. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, but then if, if that's the case too, there are still political considerations to think about there. Yeah. To me, it's the evilness of the police was almost kind of take it for taken for granted. I mean, I, I agree, Nick, I, I found that the raid 
to be completely gruesome and, and, and devastating, especially when, you know, you see the close-up on Dominique Fishback's face and, you know, the, the cop goes in the back to make sure Fred's dead. It's kind of like the nail in the hammer moment that I found very affecting. But in other moments in the film, namely uh, when they're having that battle at the Black Panther's headquarter and you see like the cops bringing in um, at the very end of it, the explosives, they kind of looked dopey to me. They just like looked ridiculous. <laughs> These men, you know, entering and just like blowing it up. It was almost like cartoonish in a way. I, I really appreciate it. I mean, just like how untailored their costumes were, their police outfits were. They were just like, you know, these doughy white guys, like, you know, exacting justice. But thinking about other portrayals of, of the police in, in American film, at least, I, you know, I, I thought of um, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, mm. which is, you know, a very visceral, almost exploitative <laughs> depiction of, of police brutality. I, I don't really like that film, <laughs> though I have to revisit it. it. I mean, I only saw it once in theaters when it came out and was kind of troubled by it. But I mean, this is not that at all, despite the fact that it does very forcefully have a political attitude uh, towards cops. And, you know, it, I think it very much does parallel you know, whatever liberal bubble we're in or, you know, the sorts of people that might be watching this movie and, and be cued into what it's about. But yeah, I mean, I appreciate it that it was already just taking police brutality for, for granted in a sense. Yeah. I feel like what you said, Beatrice, that scene in particular, it kind of flies in the face of this sort of narrative of cops being these ultra well-trained <laughs> sort of masters of will and judgment. And it's just like, they're, I'm pretty sure they're sort of drunk and like, they're just yelling at people like, with their bullhorns, like, uh, like taunting them openly, trying to get them to do something. And Yeah. There's also that scene when there's that cop in front of that's uh, like the guard at the hospital yeah, where one of the black Panthers is being taken care of. And like the way that he reproaches the, his visitor, it's just like, he like just looks stupid. He wasn't, <laughs> it was like, he has this power and he's wielding it, you know? Yeah. There's reason to be scared, but it's just like, man, who's this asshole? Like, it's a terrible, stupid person. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that it's an interesting thing, and this may be a conversation for a different time, but like, the Black directors, writers, portrayals of police versus white portrayals of police are very interesting to me because I think Shaka King, I would be very interested to talk to him about this, and I, I would wonder what he would say. It's just in terms of like, Focusing on the the ordinariness and sort of mundane nature of police is a salient fact and detail that I find in more movies by Black directors than in movies like Detroit, where it's like so much focused on the violence and brutality. I think most of the time, especially if you grow up in neighborhoods where there's a lot of cops just like around, it's like as much as you see the violence and the intimidation of their presence, you also see them just fucking sitting around. You just see them like in their cars on their phone. 
you see them like a couple of patrol cars together, guys standing outside the car just like shooting the shit. They don't look like they're doing anything. And a lot of times they aren't. Like their presence alone is supposed to be doing a lot of work. And in other movies, I feel like with Detroit specifically, I just there's a lurid quality to police brutality for a lot of white directors, I think, even if their intentions are good. And I it always puzzles me because I think obviously that is what's in the news a lot of the time. The 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 murders and beatings and like the stuff that was captured like on people's phones and is going viral and stuff. But the day-to-day, day-to-day living of of just being around people who are constantly in your neighborhood and uninvited, I think that is something that that movie captures so well. And I don't know. I mean, my dad's a black cop. So I feel like a lot of the stuff is is sort of secondhand to me of just like wondering if people notice them. That's really interesting. And, and I and, and I completely see what you mean that there's sort of a portrayal of the police that is maybe comes more out of an idea as a villain, uh, more than a kind of lived uh, reality or lived experience. If you're only trying to portray the kind of flashpoint moments, then yeah, you miss what you're talking about. Weirdly, I rewatched Dog Day Afternoon maybe a couple of months ago, but it's just obviously a great movie. Um, also a movie that I was surprised really just kind of leapt out of its time period. And I think one of the things that movie does do is is show the police as just kind of part of the crowd. I mean, the, the bank robbery makes them part of the just part of the crowd in a way. And so I don't know, that just, that just came to mind. And, and And it's funny with police dramas also that it seems like every 10 years, someone thinks they they reinvented like a, a gritty version of, of the police drama, you know, and that's also a kind of interesting cycle to watch. That's for further research. What should we go to from, from there? I Care A Lot was a movie that, yeah, I think got kind of overblown in different directions, but ultimately just for me just had a, a very acidic core <laughs> to it that that was a little hard for me to to stomach um ultimately um it, it's also been about five months i guess since i saw it so it's not as vivid generally if i remember correctly the plot outline is uh rosamund pike is a scam artist who has a whole enterprise basically taking the property of uh, older people by ultimately just committing them into old folks homes nicholas you saw it more recently maybe yeah i saw it over the weekend that's pretty much it yeah she get she colludes with uh the like healthcare providers of these elderly supposedly infirm people gets them to have a court order to say that they can't take care of themselves commits them to this retirement facility and basically takes all their stuff while while they're like imprisoned. Um, and the movie it follows Rosamund Pike as she does this grift to Diane Weist, who you then learn has some interesting connections that could put a wrinkle in Rosamund Pike's 
grand scheme to like take all of her money and stuff like that peter dinklage is that sort of wrinkle and it's one of those movies it's got a great trailer (laughs) um i hadn't heard about it until the trailer came out um and then my friend who had gone to tiff last year was talking about it she really loved it and she's someone whose cinematic opinions i really trust and i think this is one of those movies that I think a lot of people are really going to like it. I just don't think it was for me. It's got a sort of bubblegum, poppy style to it that translates very well well to a trailer. In fact, a lot of scenes in the movie look like they're trailers. Like it looked like they look like mini trailers in the movie. Um, that's really true. But yeah, on the whole, it's like it's an it's a movie that's under two hours. It feels so much longer than that. Like there's a a big twist. Oh, not it's not even a twist. It's like a sort of narrative uh, three sixty or one eighty, I guess, where what you think is going to happen doesn't happen. And I think the filmmakers definitely thought that that would be cool. <laughs> and to me, it was more like, oh my god, that just means there's so much movie left. I watched it with my partner and we both thought there was going to be a sort of big short kind of thing going on with that movie in terms of using a very glitzy sort of shiny veneer and style to talk about a very terrible sort of modern conundrum that's happening, a form of exploitation that most people don't know very much about. It sort of sets itself up to be like that very much um and then it kind of goes off in a to a completely different direction which is a case of a movie that can't do both i think tonally i don't know i hate when reviews they're like this movie is totally all over the place because it's like i don't know movies do that all the time but like in this case it it really does not seem to have figured out what it's trying to be there's like several different types of movies in this movie and I don't think that any of them work for very long. And I question the sympathies of, of this sort of narrative view of its main characters. Rosamund Pike, as compelling as she is, her character is just like a completely terrible person <laughs> that like I did not want to see succeed. And it seems like the movie thinks that too up to a point and then there's like a real girl bossy shift that had me sort of scratching my head and then the sort of last 30 minutes of the movie are such a jumble and it feels like they're really rushing to like tie things up that by the end i was like okay yeah sure that was fine but (laughs) that's how i felt about it at least (laughs) yeah she's celebrated for her accomplishments more or less I mean, on the one hand, I could say that's is this a consummately like Trump era movie where, you know, the the most venal come out on, on top. It just didn't feel like the movie was had enough of a thought in its head to, to be going in that direction. And so you're just kind of left at this not great taste in, in your mouth that you've just been you've just been like put through the ringer. Also, just like amazingly bad timing for something like that to be happening you know <laughs> in, a, in a year when thousands 
thousands of elderly are are dying. It just was like, this is I don't know this this. Uh, yeah, no. Oh my god. I I mean whatever. Every movies come out when they come out. I, yeah, if anyone wants to want, watch a movie similarly, just watch The Wolf of Wall Street. Like, watch The Wolf of Wall Street. Like, basically, like, that movie has, like, basically everything that I care a lot wants to have in terms of, like, an indictment of this terrible thing while also showing you a character that, like, sort of gets everything he wants up until the end. I don't know. I hate when you can tell that filmmakers are being clever. They think they're being clever. It's like, oh, my God. Okay. It's not working for you. I have not seen Promising Young Woman, but there was something about just from what I've read and the trailer and just like the images, there's there's a sort of aesthetic similarity between those movies that I like, I wonder if they would be interesting to think about back to back. I mean, for someone who's seen both, like I, I haven't seen Promising Young Woman, like I said. I, I agree. There's definitely the the whiff in the air of of how how clever we are. Well, I so I mean that's that's I care a lot. The Father, uh, also a movie uh, centering on the older generation, uh, entirely different. That's a movie that feels like a type. But in the case of The Father, I, I actually felt like it worked against type for me. Maybe just maybe you can start because you also saw the stage production. Yeah, um, so it's, I mean, the play is written by Florian Zeller, who is this French novelist. Um, and so the, you know, the play is directed by you know, different people, whoever staged it at the time. But, you know, I, I have seen the play bef- well before I saw the movie, actually twice. Um, once the, in the, there's a New York production a few years ago with Frank Langella as the father. I thought he was great in that. I almost missed him. But um and then another time I actually reviewed the play um, in DC. It was like staged at um, a much smaller playhouse with um, some unknown actors. Anyways, yeah, the, you know, it's, it's originally a, a play and I guess Florian Zeller, they, you know, let him become a film director for this too, which is kind of interesting. You know, I'm, I'm always a bit skeptical of stage adaptations. I don't know, maybe because like as a, also a theater person, I'm just like, you know, see the play, you know, and, and often with the cinematic versions, it does feel very play-like, which isn't a critique, (laughs) but it just kind of feels like they're snatching up an interesting story and then just making it into a movie. But I think here it it does add new qualities, you know, having it be a movie does add and emphasize new qualities that weren't readily apparent in the play. I mean, you know, with the theater, with the theater version, I found that it was, there's something actually more uncanny about it. And, you know, just being in the room and like having new people come onto the stage and, and, you know, the father kind of reacting and you like kind of being in the presence of that was I don't know, almost stranger. <laughs> um, and the play also has these like experimental incursions at certain points. It's it's a lot weirder, I found. Um, but with the movie version, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was very, very easy <laughs> to like and, and get swept up by, um, in part because, I mean, it's Anthony Hopkins pretty much being unleashed in all his dramatic prowess. 
But, you know, with the, the movie, I, I found that it was the medium lended itself more to like being immersed in what that experience would feel like, you know, having Alzheimer's um, and, and the father's point of view. And then, you know, because of that, it did feel a bit more Hall of Mirrorsy, um, but in an interesting way, I found. Um, it also emphasizes, you know, the emotional toll that dealing with with a relative that has this condition has on family members. I mean, we really, I think, are able through Olivia Coleman's performance, really get a sense of, of how devastating that might feel. And I think that the movie, you know, did that in a very, you know, without really taking its focus away from the father and, and his experience, it really um, wove the daughter's experience in, into it quite well, I found. It's hard not to appreciate a film like this. I mean, the conceit in and of itself, you know, having you pretty much look through the father's eye and like constantly being overwhelmed by the fact that there's, you know, things are constantly changing. People are not what they seem. Places are not what they seem. I mean, it's, it's very harrowing and, and surreal. And, you know, it's pretty much 15 minutes into the film, knowing that it's going to be this way, you know, that this is kind of a special and, and very unique portrayal of that experience you know, there, there is a level to which I'm just like, well, it is also just like this performance showcase. It's like precisely the sort of thing that you almost feel like is created for award season. And, and I don't mean that to detract from, you know, how well it, it is able to do what it does. Um, but there is that sort of prestige quality to it um, that kind of flattens it for me. It is true that that kind of get that gets in the way of, of, of watching it as a movie a little bit because you're there's the expectation of some sort of bravura quality showing this decline. And I guess it is a movie that retains a stage-bound quality just in the sense that the location is limited, mostly limited to the house where uh, Anthony Hopkins lives. And maybe this is clear in the play, but what part of his confusion is that he thinks he's living alone, but he's actually living with his daughter, who's uh, played by Olivia Coleman, and the house as a kind of extension of his his sense of self and his sense of stability, event, psychological stability, just keeps shifting. And yeah, just this kind of profound sense of disorientation sets in as he doesn't even know where he is. Um, and I mean, how did the how did the play portray that? I mean, I didn't. <laughs> I'm immediately thinking of the most clunky ways it could do that by like raising and lowering windows frames or something. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I mean, there were definitely, I mean, there was an intermission <laughs> in which, in which it kind of shifted more into, you know, the hospital environment where the setting kind of changed a bit, but, you know, for the initial confusion of, you know, him not sure whether he's in his flat or whether he's in his daughter's flat. The production I saw in DC, at least it was, um, I mean, it was just the same space, but then new characters would enter and he'd think they were other people or he'd just kind of walk off stage briefly as if he was going into a different room and then come back out and then be overwhelmed because it's actually, you know, not what he sees. And so, you know, what we're watching is actually just the same thing. But, you know, he thinks he's watching different things. And, and um, it also has the same 
does the same thing where you know new people come in and and they sh- their identities shift. Actually, in the one of the productions I saw, there's they also play with like race, where it's like actors of different races and him confusing them for certain people and that kind of adding an element of shock to when he like encounters this new person. (laughs) But the theater tends to, I feel, be very winking about these sorts of things and and uses that a lot. Um, But, you know, it's funny, I was watching this this last night, actually. And there's a scene when the husband, the daughter's husband is just getting really angry with the father for, you know, just being an old man and having Alzheimer's essentially. But um, he smacks the father and, and then Anthony Hopkins has this, you know, really pathetic and, and sad and crying scene. And it's kind of a, one of the emotional high points of, of the movie I found. And like in the middle of his weeping, you know, I was taken with it because I, you know, it had it built up to that point. But then my boyfriend uh, came out of the other room and just like hovered over me. And so like, and then he started watching and then he was like, what the hell? And like, I paused it and then, you know, started watching it again. And, you know, that moment just in isolation <laughs> did feel super like hammy and just kind of a little ridiculous. Um, and, you know, it reminded me of how these mo- these types of movies often just rely on, you actually committing to it and being immersed in certain moments and that when they're taken out of that context, they often really can seem very ridiculous in their melodrama. And it was really quite disturbing to have that happen yesterday with, with this movie, especially given, you know, the seriousness of the subject matter. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Cause that happens to me all the time, every single year in like December <laughs> and January where people, people, yeah, just people are just sort of falling over themselves about this or that performance. And I'm just, I'm just thinking like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, it, it seemed the most hollow seeming, you know, playing to the rafters sort of thing, or just, yeah, just manipulative sort of thing. And, and I, it's sometimes hard to explain, but there is something about being with it or in, in the moment with it. It's funny about his performance, like sometimes he kind of lifts off, but in other times he's doing like a very finely drawn kind of realism, you know, where he's kind of, for example, when he's cagely trying to figure out what the hell's going on, which is a lot of the time, those moments I thought were just incredible, just where, you know, you can just see him trying to work out who are these people, what's going, before he even is is talking about, you know, who are you, that I found pretty good. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 also one of these things where it's tough to separate, you know, one's kind of personal feelings about it. And for better or worse, sometimes, you know, having a personal reference for something, you know, having an experience of someone who's not been in that exact situation. But that was something that I, I definitely recognized in a lot of his performance. Um, I didn't 100% buy the regression to being a, a little boy, even though I also recognized that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to an extent that there is a truth there. Yeah. Yeah. I think he is convincing when he does do like have the regression moment. Um, but in general, like in the scheme of the film, it does feel like a plastered on moment. Like, yes, this is the necessary tragic conclusion to this movie. Though it's funny, like when I was watching it, this is not like a critical insight, but I was like thinking of 
of Benjamin Button. And I was like, is that an Alzheimer's movie? <laughs> huh. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that in, in like whatever it would be, 10, over 10 years now. So Me either. I only saw it once in theaters and I'm told that it's, it's kind of being reappraised or that like people think it's a lot better than what, it, how it was originally received. I don't know. I mean, I come from a weird bubble with regard to that film because it was, it was on the cover of film comment. So I have to admire the folly of that movie. There's just a beautiful folly to wanting to even make that, <laughs> make that movie. But um, yeah, I mean, the father, I, one last thing I want to mention about the father is just Olivia Coleman. And this performance for me brought out a quality about her that I think is, is really remarkable. And, and maybe it comes from watching her for like a few weeks now in Peep Show. Oh, I love Peep Show. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> this can immediately become a peep show podcast. I, yes. I, have, I have zero problem with that. Um, <laughs> what I like about what she, what she does in The Father is she's able to go big and go small in, in a sense. She's able to be the responsible adult in one moment, but also just be completely shattered and discombobulated by what's going on. Uh, and be put in a kind of very fearful place in a, in a way that's, I guess, vulnerability is one way of saying it. But a lot of people who perform or portray vulnerability, there's still a scale to it or a stature to it. Um, there's just something about the way she, the way in which Olivia Coleman can look worried that she's misstepped, uh, that she's out of her depth in a moment, or that she is hurting someone <laughs> and doesn't want to and doesn't mean to is but is also being hurt all of those little things these just the minutia of all those little emotional kind of micro reactions i think that i don't know this was a movie where i i really admired the way she, she did that i yeah again i will always love her for having gone through like season upon season of peep show where she she's just playing this character just seems to get worse and worse <laughs> Watched, I watched the whole series. By the end, she's just this like unhappy, kind of ornery, you know, apparently often day drunk, pseudo wife. Uh, there's something about the ab abjection that comedy lets you do that maybe makes her even more vulnerable and raw when, she, when she's in a dramatic role. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I love Olivia Coleman. You know, in Peep Show, obviously, it, it's funny because her evolution in that show is like she's kind of like a mousy, normal character in the beginning. I mean, and Mark, you know, one of the main characters is just attracted to her almost because she's a person that just like pays attention to him. But then, you know, as you said, by the end, she's almost as unhinged and, and neurotic as as the main characters. And, you know, I really, really like that she really sticks around throughout the show i mean she could very easily have been a character that just kind of gets cut out once her uh initial romantic arc ends but you know she just keeps on going which which i really appreciate but yeah i, I agree about her role in the father i thought she was quite good um really unique actress i mean i, I think that part of it is just like the cadence of her voice she's got kind of like this staccato quality to just the way she speaks and I think with the father I think it really adds to this kind of nervous quality of her character this anxious quality just like kind of having this motor mouth 
you know, speaking through her anxiety. I mean, she's needing to deal with this. And, you know, there's the unsupportive husband that's almost kind of like, I mean, he's a complete asshole, but it's like he's the reminder that like, this is a terrible situation, but then she just like fast talks her way out of it. Like, yes, I know I'm dealing with it. But I really like how, you know, she captures anxiety in her delivery and, you know, also through her micro expressions and, and things like that. But yeah, I, I, I really like Olivia Coleman. <laughs> yeah, a, a virtuoso of angstiness or something. That's, uh, I guess we can bring the father chapter to a close. Since I sat through it, I don't know, at some point 15 years ago, I will mention the movie Slipstream, which Anthony Hopkins directed which I thought of during The Father because it's it's a movie that this completely like fractured point of view and timeline that skips all around. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, uh, Anthony Hopkins made a movie called Slipstream that for some reason coming to my mind. Anyway, um, so, well, maybe we can finish off with, we'll stay in the British Isles uh, with St. Maud. Is that one of those things where it was supposed to come out last summer, but then it, came out more recently i think so i mean i definitely remember seeing the trailer for it like way early last year yeah and then it was one of the things so i think it was released in the uk first it seemed like it took a really long time for it to come over here yeah um so what's saint Maud about that's that's the question of the hour Uh, (laughs) um it's about rapture and faith and belief all sort of like packaged and ostensibly a horror veneer i i go back and forth a lot about the degree to which it is a horror movie to me this is again so this is going to be one of those things where i might alienate a lot of people who aren't catholic but like i think as a movie that portrays the sort of descent into madness of its main character it plays everything very straight so saint maud her name they say mode in the movie because they're british so i'm just gonna say Maud for the american listeners but um she is a caregiver who used to be a nurse who is very devout and she takes on this new client who has terminal cancer and over the course of the movie, she believes that she's being called by God to save this woman's soul. And her sort of her relationship with God and the way that God sort of manifests in her life is is very radical and sort of and very scary. She she gets these like sort of full body the director, writer director, this is her first movie, which is hard for me to believe. It's so good. Um she calls them godgasms. Basically, like when Maud feels the like presence of God. She like cannot control her body and sort of like writhes on the ground. And you can't tell if it it's painful or if it's pleasurable for her. And as the movie goes on, these sort of occurrences increase in frequency and intensity and other things start to happen as well. She starts to have visions. She starts to see things that aren't there and a lot of her attachment to this belief is couched in an unspoken event that happened recently in her past that she's trying to hide and which the movie does not ever tell you about. You get 
sort of very visceral glimpses as to what might have happened and the type of person that she was before we see her, which is very different, you know, in the sort of main part of the movie, she's like very prim and proper and very uptight and almost prudish. And there's a part of the movie where that all breaks down and you get a glimpse of like the kind of person that she was before she was saved, basically. And the movie sort of ratchets up from there where her belief that God is telling her to do these things, you know, goes to a naturally sort of bloody kind of horrific point. But like, it reminded me a lot of First Reformed where these movies are, they'd be good mirrors for each other because First Reformed is really about doubt and the, the questioning of the presence of God and what to do with that silence and, or what to do with your own, cynicism about the state of the world um and also that movie builds to a very bloody ending that also like ends with a kind of fantastical last shot that you can't tell if it's real or not the sort of religious specificities of saint maud and first reformed are different because like saint maud she's catholic and first reformed he's protestant some sort of protestant i can't i can't remember but it's a movie i've been thinking about a lot i'm working on a piece right now about it for bright wall dark room and it's i don't know it's very rare to see belief and faith portrayed as sort of honestly and not mean-spirited as this movie does even though it's actually really scary <laughs> um, and sort of unsettling to witness. So yeah, I think of the movies I've seen in quarantine, certainly it's one of the few that really kind of perked me up. And I was like, whoa, like, what is this movie? I watched it on a day where I was really not in the mood to watch it. And by the end of it, I was so glad that I did. It's really special. I feel like just from a filmmaking standpoint and a storytelling standpoint, it's so odd and strange. And it's very tight and very well-constructed. As a debut, I can't, I keep forgetting it's a debut because it just seems like the work of someone who's made tons and tons of movies. Yeah, it's, when I watched it, I was, I kind of fell for the Jennifer Ela's character, the the woman that, who's kind of housebound and, and is the object of caretaking. Because she's extremely cynical and over-the-top condescending to the nurse, who is played by Morphid Clark. Morphith. I, I had to look up how do you how you pronounce your name. It's Morphith, like as in I-T-H, even though it's spelled M-O-R-F-Y-D-D. Yeah. Thank you for that. I didn't want to, I don't need a whole, I don't need the Welsh brigade coming, coming after me um, for that. <laughs> um but yeah, it's it's. I think it's a movie I kind of need to see fresh because I was so busy in my mind just kind of hating on Jennifer Ela's character, <laughs> who they make a big deal of showing that she is slash was cool. Uh, I mean, she's like listening to like late seventies, early eighties post punk a lot of the time. Um, that's how they part of how they signal that. And, and yeah, she was a former dancer. Yeah. So she seems to have this kind of insufferable set that she used to run with that will come over for a party at, at one point. But yeah, the movie just kind of breaks free of, of her gaze, I guess. The director is Rose Glass, 
I would also urge people to seek out. So for RogerEwer.com, Sheila O'Malley wrote a really great review of that movie that very succinctly um, says a lot of stuff that I felt about that movie. But like what you were just saying about Jennifer Ely's character, like this is very much Maude's movie. It's not a two-hander. And I think there's a point in the movie where the movie sort of reminds you that this is not a movie about the two of them. It's like, it's a movie about Maude and sort of like what happens to her and like what's happening for her. Like, I think the reason why it's played so straight Part of that is that everything that you're seeing is everything that she's seeing. Everything that she's hearing is everything that you're hearing. And because of that, there's no cutting back and forth between her reality and like objective reality, at least until the very end. And I think that's part of the reason why I think that movie's so good is that it has a sort of taxi driver feel in terms of like, one, the narration, but two, this sort of mire into the protagonist's sort of psyche and and experience that plays with the way that the world sort of just works for them. There's a lot of interesting references or influences of that movie that I was trying to suss out. And none of them were done in a sort of like, ooh, look at me kind of way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I thought a little bit about the Satyajit Ray movie, uh, Devi, because at, at the center of it is a young woman who is believed to be a goddess basically a goddess is manifest in her and she has to kind of grapple with that because it, it upends her life and she wants to escape from this role she's been put into um so I, I kind of i often think of that movie it's not one of his movies that comes up a lot it's it's also a movie that makes me think a lot about how does it affect your experience of a movie whether you believe the things in the movie are within the realm of human experience versus things that are like intrusions on on human experience. I, I don't know if that's some of what you're, you're getting, but like how does how does St. Maud function if it's viewed only as a horror movie versus something where it's grappling with more than just something overtaking her, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think, I don't know. I watched it with my partner who has been very... Uh very understanding about my obsession with like all things that have to do with like, Catholicism <laughs> and, and like, I don't know how they felt about it. I certainly, my, my friend who saw it before me, who's not Catholic thought that movie was terrifying and thought it was, was scary because it is played so straight. But yeah, I would be interested. I, I, I as I was saying earlier, like Guillermo del Toro tweeted about the movie and as someone whose Catholic influences are very apparent in his movies I was very gratified to see that he kind of felt the same way I did. So, yeah. Well, that's St. Maud. Um, we can wrap it up there. But uh, thank you both for taking the time to chat. And I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.